Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made for More podcast. Today I am joined by a very inspirational uh, surfer come coach. It is Cam Miller. Cam is a former engineer, banker and founder of what has twice been UK baby wear brand of the year. He now helps business leaders transform their careers and lives and shares incredible career journeys and expertise via his podcast. Cam is a very inspiring of the people that he's spoken to and the work that he does now. Let's jump into today's episode and I hope you get a lot out of it. Welcome to the Made For More podcast. I'll be sharing my experiences along with some actionable advice to take your leadership to the next level. Introducing your host, it's me, Ali Nitschke. I'm a leadership and courageous conversations expert, a Nutella lover, a mother of four young boys, a wife and a dance floor junkie. I'm here to give you the motivation you need to level up, lead yourself, lead your team and your business. Let's go. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made For More podcast. I'm very excited to have a friend from across the other side in the West. Hello, Cam. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. I'm well, Ellie. Thanks Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. It is my pleasure. I would actually, uh, we've got so many interesting things to talk about today. You and I met via a mutual friend, our coach, Sam, a couple of months ago now, and I love your story and I'm very excited to share it with listeners and uh, delve a little deeper into all things Cam. But before we get too, too far into it, let's actually kick off with where you started and where you're going. So how did you come to be where you are today? Well, that's, you know, that's like, that goes all the way back really, doesn't it? But I grew up in uh, Perth, Western Australia, but I was born in in Melbourne on the Eastern States. You know, I was in the son of an engineer and grew up in a, in an engineering town. So I think my career journey really started as an engineer because I didn't really see many other options at that stage. You know, it was, it was where the money was and it was where, you know, everything was kind of guiding me. So yeah, I think it was engineering where I got got my first sort of career experience and leadership experience as well. I had some other leadership experience before in sort of primary school and in sports and athletics and stuff, but, you know, I really got my teeth into it in engineering to begin with. And I did that for a few years. I I think when, I think almost within the first month or two of starting my engineering role, I knew I was working for a French company and I knew straight away that all I wanted, and I haven't always had this single-mindedness in my life, I should add, (laughs) but I knew straight away that what I really wanted was an expatriation to the head office in Paris and everybody else was asking for money and promotions, all this sort of stuff. And I wanted some of those things as well. But from day one, I was like, you know, I want, I want that expatriation. I want that expatriation. And they weren't really doing it to young graduate engineers and that, but they said, well, you know, maybe in three years, we'll kind of make that happen for you. And at to begin with, three years was a long way away for them. And then it was like two years, then it was like one year, then it was like, God, he's really, you know, he's been persistent about this. We better actually start calling people and thinking about making this happen for him. So that that's what happened, really. You know, I had some really good sort of early leadership experience in Australia, but then, yeah, fairly quickly, I was uh, whizzed off to the head office in Paris, which again was a whole whole sort of new leadership experience. So that was kind of my engineering career. And then just to give an overview, I guess, of my career, went to business school after that, studied an MBA, commerce, et cetera. I moved into investment banking, did that for a few years, 
burnt out as an investment banker, working crazy hours, working, I was finishing often at 3am uh, on weekdays, working weekends, the holidays that didn't get cancelled on, you know, I was sitting on my laptop on the beach, these sorts oh, of things. Yeah. So it was just, it was just, you know, quite a contrast to Perth where I started my career and, you know, people were finishing by five <laughs> and yeah. I was working a nine day fortnight for this French company where you know, every second Friday I had off. So for somebody that had experienced, you know, a lot more freedom in my life in terms of my career, I really went to the other end of the scale with my investment banking, with my investment banking career. And it, you know, it really didn't align with me and my values and what was important to me. So I tried my best, but naturally wasn't a good fit. And over time I got I got tired and burnt out. And and that led me into entrepreneurship. I left the baby, left the business, uh, banking business with a, a friend. We'd been hatching business ideas over uh, a weekly juice session when a I juice, think it was a boost juice or something juice session, yeah. <laughs> we disappear for a, uh, a smoothie and talk business ideas in the afternoon each week and we eventually came up with this idea for a sustainable baby wear business so we went out we did that it was really hard for the first you know two years especially we found our feet we had some big leadership challenges in that but we we worked our way through them and that business gone to be quite a successful babywear business twice uh uk babywear brand of the year now so it'd be quite a big business in the uk and i only left that because um along the way particularly um after my experience with burnout I really started focusing a lot on my personal growth, my personal development, professional development as well. And I started seeing that more as you know something I was really passionate about rather than just it being kind of like a hobby or something that you do yeah. on the side of your career. I mean, I really unearthed the passion in that. And so I ended up leaving successful baby wear business, which was a hard decision because everybody was like, well, you know, hang around there's gonna be lots more money in it and all these sort of things it's going really well big team all these things but you know I'd found what I really wanted to do really for the rest of my career and that was in you know my own personal journey in terms of growth and that but really then helping other people as well to to get the most out of themselves and get the most out of their careers their businesses as well and so yeah now I'm, I'm I would say I call myself a trainer but that's a coach and a, a teacher and now I've helped over 200 people to take I call it their their careers their business this is their lives from good, great, and on to incredible. So I think there's a lot of me talking about it. Yeah, that was the that's the 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 big, I guess, the overview um, of what's brought me here. I love it. I've got so many questions. I've got so many questions about how you ended up, you know, deciding that sustainable baby wear was the way to go. We'll get back yep. to that in a moment. I mean, WA is pretty big when you're talking about living, growing up with with an engineer father and yep. an engineer in engineering town. Are we talking? Rural, regional, probably not right in Perth CBD, I'm guessing. No, well, you know, Perth, my parents came over, my dad was an engineer and came over to Perth as an engineer. And, you know, from day one, they called it a big mining town, basically. Yeah, yeah it was... Yeah. Went from 1 million people to sort of 2 million people over the course of a, a mining boom, really. But it, yeah, it's wow. really resources that have driven it, you know, iron ore in particular, oil and gas now, lithium and electric vehicles and batteries and all these sort of things. So, you know, underpinning, you know, every career really in Perth, it's, it's, it's around the resource industry. You know, the lawyers yeah. and the yeah. accountants exist to service those industries yeah. and the people working in those industries. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I hadn't really, it took me quite a long time to really understand who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. And so in lieu of not 
really having any ideas other than from an early age kind of thinking that I was um, destined for entrepreneurship. You know, I idolized people like Richard Branson and that I started a health tonic elixir business in high school where a friend of mine were door knocking and trying to get adults to buy (laughs) health tonic, which is all the rave these days, but we were way ahead of our time. (laughs) (laughs) And so that, that business failed and yeah, you know, just there wasn't an entrepreneur, there wasn't a Silicon Valley, wasn't an entrepreneurial career path. There wasn't incubators, accelerators like there are now. There wasn't the entrepreneurship hub at the University of Western Australia where I went to. And so it was just, you know, it seemed like, hey, you know, engineering can make good money. I could start getting, you know, the house, my life in order, these sorts of things. And it's a pretty global career. So Mm -hmm. it might allow me to do things like travel. And And the backstory on the wanting to go from France to France was actually in high school, I really wanted to learn French, but my parents at that time, Indonesia economy was really thriving and it looked like they were going to be a big business partner for Australia. And so my dad was like, no, you know, you should learn Indonesian. It's going to be a lot more helpful for you. But I had this passion and enjoyment and excitement for French. So I did Indonesia. I did okay with that at high school. But yeah, the first company I worked for out of university was a French company. And then straight away, I was on them to to send me over to Paris, France. And so that taught me, you know, and I only kind of have learned a lot of this stuff in hindsight, but that taught me, you know, just how important it is to listen to our intuition. You know, when it says entrepreneurship might be a good fit, when it says seems like French is something that really excites and interests you, that these are big, important clues in terms of, you know, where we might find future enjoyment in our lives. And so we want to craft our careers and our lives around these kind of clues that we get along the way. I think that Yeah, that's incredible. And I think certainly in the last 12 months, people have had a real chance to sit and slow down and go, actually, you know, that path I was on to burnout is not really where I wanted to be. And and without having that opportunity to stop. And while for some it's been devastating for others, and you'd be seeing this in your work as well, there are people that are going, you know what? I've got this real drive and desire to do something more, be more, do more around you yep. know, starting my own business or changing my career or the fact that I'm working, you know, 17 hours a day just doesn't really yeah. fit with where I want my life to be anymore. You mentioned you always wanted to learn French and then you learn Indonesian and I learned French in primary school and in high school and I've always wanted to learn Indonesian so we'll be able to give each other <laughs> some, some lessons outside of the podcast but how funny. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're exactly right on the kind of uh, the burnout career change kind of thing. I, I read an article, in West Australian, the paper here in, in WA, just a couple of weeks back. And it said it was a survey of quite a large amount of people that 60% of people were interested in changing their jobs. And wow. I think that has been brought on by COVID and everything that's happened that people have had this a bit of a break, a bit of a like, oh, maybe I've been on autopilot. Maybe I've been sort of making some decisions in my life that haven't been completely my own. Maybe it was my parents that influenced me. Maybe it was where I grew up and the internet and opportunities to start online businesses, all of these sort of things, you know, (laughs) the ability to become Insta famous and create a YouTube channel and all those sort of stuff is really causing a lot of people to say, hey, you know, what is it I really want to do? And are there other smart ways I can make money? And and interestingly, that same article said, the main reason people aren't really pursuing their passion and these other paths is at the moment, they're not sure if they can make sort of similar earnings and money in those career paths. So they're, they're wanting to, but then they're, they're not sure yet in themselves and in the paths as to whether they can actually go after that and make it happen. Well, 
this is a complete segue, but you and I both know that it's absolutely possible. We were talking absolutely. about you know, various <laughs> niches and there was a couple that popped up. I'm not sure if you remember what they were, but one of them was someone that did corset making. So like Victorian yep. era, era corset lessons and tutorials that was their niche and then there was someone else that i read recently who did underwater dog photography and that was their business (laughs) like teaching people how to take photos of their pets underwater amazing anyway there's a job for everyone you just have to uh, get creative i guess and uh, get rid of some of those limiting beliefs that can sometimes hold us back yeah absolutely you left you left uni went into engineering went or fell pretty much straight into a leadership role from already having experience in school and sports and this is purely out of curiosity when you went to um, Paris and you know yeah. shifted there with the same company what was the I guess the leadership framework or practices was it very yep. different to here in Australia versus um, Paris tell me about that yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the reasons I was able to get the expatriation to Paris is I was successful in the couple of projects that I did in Perth, Australia, and I really thrived in the environment there because the the leadership structure was very flat. You know, they encouraged people to take, you know, ownership and responsibility for as much as people could. <laughs> and that led me to see different opportunities in terms of leadership and saving money and other things, which added a lot of value um, to the business. And that's why one of the reasons I, you know, I was able to uh, kind of get what I wanted in terms of the expatriation. But then when I arrived in Paris, I didn't speak any um, French. I'd started learning a bit before I went there, but naturally I hadn't learned any in high school. So <laughs> I was on the back, I was on the back foot a little bit there. But that was, you know, that was a challenge in terms of making friendships and other things. And some of the meetings I found early on were in French. And, you know, I had to go and ask people afterwards, you know, what actually happened and all all of this sort of stuff. But I think the biggest challenge for me was that it's a very hierarchical structure, leadership structure in France, whereby people have very specific roles and specific job focuses and you create problems and friction for people if you move outside of that. So for me, I really enjoyed really the whole experience of being in Paris, France. But I, I remember when I was moving from Paris to London, I was like, I'm really looking forward to working in an Anglo-Saxon system and when the, you know, the hierarchy is much flatter and you can take ownership and be involved in lots of different aspects of a particular project or, or things that you're working on. So I had to, I think early on, I kind of wailed against that a little bit and got in trouble a few yeah. different times. But after a while, I realized that it's just the way it is here. I don't need to or really want to try change that. I've got to work within this kind of frame and structure that's here and find ways to enjoy the work and be creative in, you know, the areas that I can. And one of the ways I did that was I became the health safety and environment officer for the office in Paris. So that was, you know, a role that's just up. Nobody really uh, wanted it. (laughs) And my boss basically said, is this something that'd be interesting to you? And that, that was, you know, I got to look at all the different I was quite interested in the environment. And at that time I was starting, I was having some, I was, I felt a misalignment in my own values in terms of the environment with oil and gas production and Mm -hmm. uh, other things. And so I was starting to think, well, maybe this isn't another reason why this isn't the right career path for me. But I balanced that at the time by working it in this environmental officer position and doing what I could within the organization to improve things. 
So yeah, I'd say that that was it. It was the the hierarchical structure, and it's it's quite stark. I would say. I think, you know, I I heard this anecdotally of somebody there that two managers in an organization, the one that went to the better school when they graduated, even if this is twenty years later, will get paid more than the other one. And it's the same with a lot of senior what? positions in organizations in government that. You need to go to the right school. You need to have the right connections to to move up these kind of hierarchical kind of um, position, which is which is fine. It's worked well, great there for a long period of time. But for me personally, I was like, no, this isn't. I I would like a career path where I've got (laughs) more options and more opportunities to move upwards based on merit. Wow, interesting. I had no idea about that. So then once you finished finished in Paris, you went back to business school and got into investment banking, yep. which to me is just, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, bit of billions in my mind. Was it as exciting <laughs> and as ruthless as that? Tell me a little bit about it. I know you probably went in with some expectations and left. You've mentioned burnt out and tired and, and ready for change. Yeah, How was the good bit? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, to be honest, as a, an impressionable young guy in my career, that you know, really, still at that point, didn't really understand myself and what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I read I didn't, the movie wasn't out then, but I re, I'd read the Wolf of Wall Street book, and I was quite enamored with you know that yeah. as a as a career path. It sounded exciting. There was this creative freedom. There was leadership. You know. What was it Jordan Belfort? Yeah, he created a real culture within that organization, which was a lot of fun, but also they created a lot of value and wealth through it as well. And so, you know, that was part of the interest and excitement for me. Also, the company that we were working for on the project I was on in uh, Paris was a Houston-based company. It was a private equity um, mm-hmm. held company, and it got bought or taken over, or at least was tried to get bought while we were working for them. And so, I got drawn into this world of actually, wow, there's these big, there's these mergers and acquisitions. There's these yeah. businesses that are selling each other. And I had actually done engineering at commerce at university to hedge my bets because part of me knew that engineering wasn't for me. And so I thought well, maybe I'll do a maybe bit of commerce. So I've got, I've got some options on the, on the side. And I found that I was quite enthralled with what was going on. I'm reading the Wolf of Wall Street book. And so I said, well, hey, this looks like a, a pretty good next career step. But uh, what's interesting is that I did an MBA to make that career move. When I left Australia, I didn't even know what an MBA was. And so it just, it was an important learning for me that by going overseas, by trying some new things and expanding my horizons, I was able to gain some perspectives and some see some pathways in life that I otherwise hadn't noticed or, or known we were there. And so I saw that as a logical next step. I was tempted to do something entrepreneurial at business school, but all of the advice was to go out and get a, a high paying safe job. And, you know, other things like probably inspired by a little bit, the Wolf of Wall Street, prestige, luxury, status, these sort of things that were part of the investment banking kind of mystique drew me in. And so the little voice inside that was saying, no, go try entrepreneurship, got overwhelmed by all of these other voices. And so I went into investment banking. And in hindsight, I learned that it was it was that point when I went against my intuition that I actually started a very slow and imperceptible road into burnout because I was going against the things that deep down were truly important to me. In investment banking, I had to sacrifice a great deal of my time, freedom, really. I had to cancel a lot on 
on dinners and things. I think my parents flew into London for the first time and I was going to meet them at the airport and I had to cancel. And then I, no. we had a dinner and then I was still late for the dinner because there was some big deal on and this sort of stuff. And, you know, that stuff to begin with, I was able to move past, but over time that stuff really started to grind on me and the long hours, et cetera. But yeah, it just taught me that, you know, there was a, there were signals early on that I was yeah. going against what was truly important to me. And if I'd had the knowledge and the know-how and the skills to actually work out at that point in time and get clear on what was truly important to me, health, fitness, family, friends, creativity, freedom, all of these sorts of things, I wouldn't have made that decision. I would have had the strength of will to say, no, actually, this path doesn't look like it's the right fit for me. I really should go try entrepreneurship, even though that seems like it's a risky option at the moment. But, you know, I look at now having experienced burnout, even though I'm super grateful for it because it put me on the path that I'm currently on. It helped me discover my passion for things like values and personal growth and all of these things. And I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, other people don't need to make the same mistake that I made, you know, better off finding out what you really want to do at the earliest possible point in your life so that you can start building momentum, skills, habits, connections, everything in that area. And you can start building a life really around a career that aligns with who you are deep down. Yeah. And you've mentioned a few times about, you know, following that entrepreneurial journey or getting onto the entrepreneurial train, but I'm guessing here, so tell me if I'm wrong, but you're working with, you know, your clients now are people that are, you know, either in careers looking to change careers, do something that's more suited to their values, or perhaps even do some of this entrepreneurial investigation and testing to see what's going on. So I think what my question is, is do you think that, you know, everyone wants to do entrepreneurial? Are some people better suited to being employees? And how do you know that? You know, how do you follow your intuition that way to get started? Yeah, it's interesting. It's something I've been thinking about quite a, quite a lot. There's a lot of people that will say, you know, I, I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body and where I'm currently at, you know, as an employee, et cetera, is, is what I want to do. But, you know, even if you are an employee, you want to, to be as successful as an employee as you can, as I kind of alluded to before, you want to act like an owner early on. To begin with, you want to own your role and what you're doing. And as I described, you want to try own up and across as much as you can, you know, because if you can start, you know, taking ownership for a project you're working on, if you can start thinking about, you know, what's our client actually think of this? And that's how maybe a project manager would think about it. You might come up with opportunities for advancement and to improve the project, add more value to the client, and you move up more quickly. And, you know, as you move up different positions in an organization in terms of leadership, you're really just taking on more ownership. And, you know, in many respects, that's really what entrepreneurship is, that you're you're taking ownership for your own business by that point. So for me, it's it's actually more a continuum in many, in many different ways of ownership and responsibility. But it's one of those things that it's you know, when you move into entrepreneurship, there's lots of different skills. I think the biggest mistake I see um, with people moving into entrepreneurship is actually doing it too soon. But you know, there's a couple of different angles to that is that when you become an entrepreneur, you need to understand the accounting, the finance, the marketing, the product, all of these different aspects. And so there's lots of different knowledge and skills that you need to be a good entrepreneur. If you start learning that 
when you're young and practicing in different ways and gaining different skills for leadership and these different aspects of business, you can become an entrepreneur very, very young and you can learn entrepreneurship quite well, obviously, by actually just just doing it. You might not be an entrepreneur to begin with, but after a couple of years of giving it a go, you will be because everybody has, you know, this fabulous adaptable mind that we have ability to learn, grow, practice, gain skills, etc. But where this becomes a problem is if you haven't built up a lot of these skills and you make a jump into entrepreneurship, you often don't necessarily have that much time to learn these things because you might not have an income. You might have to do a lot of different work in a lot of different areas. You may only have a year or something like that to make you know, your business successful enough that it's producing an income. And so that's the only issue where I really see people having trouble moving into entrepreneurship. I think that's why, you know, there's a, I think there's a, I'm not sure if this is current these days, but I think I remember Curran Ray, who's a personal growth, uh, professional growth guy here in Australia saying that I think, you know, 98% of businesses fail within 10 years. And I think it's, you know, nine out of 10 entrepreneurs fail early on. And for me, it's really that everybody is 100% capable of being an entrepreneur, particularly yeah. if you niche down and you focus on an area where you really do have quite a lot of skill and knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's taking photos of dogs underwater, et cetera, then you've just <laughs> got to understand a little bit, all right, how do I get on Facebook, et cetera, use these free tools to find customers. And then you, you might have a pretty, pretty good business there. But for me, it's really that people just don't create enough time and space, you know, for the entrepreneurial journey. Maybe they rush into it, take the dive, et cetera. If you have a job now, you know, put that entrepreneurial dream or desire in your five or your 10-year plan, yeah. start working towards that, you know, maybe get coach in that area, understand what you need to learn, how you need to learn it. And if I think if people do it slow, patient, smart way, I think anybody can be an entrepreneur. And, and then my question they often ask me was, you know, why wouldn't you want to become an entrepreneur? For me, it's it's a question of creative um, freedom. If you've got the skill and strength um, to run your own business and to have total creative freedom over how you spend your days and how you serve your clients, to serve the clients you want and to serve them in the ways that you want, obviously that that benefits them the most, it's a really exciting, you know, way to to work through your life. And I I, I I use the term career, but for me, that means employee, entrepreneur, all of these different areas of professional development of work, et cetera. I kind of just group under that one umbrella term these days. Does that, that answer the question a little bit? <laughs> it, it absolutely does. So, and I know that you agree with me here around, you know, when you are an entrepreneur, when you are a business owner, you're essentially wearing the leadership hat all the time. You're leading yep. yourself, you're leading your business, you're leading your clients. Tell me a little bit around, and we touched on this just before I hit record, what has been the transition or what have you noticed for you in terms of, you know, leadership by title, working in an organisation versus leadership now for you in your business, serving your people? Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. I think when I first came out of university, my assumption was if you've got the title, you've got the power. (laughs) And so my first experience as a leader in engineering was, you know, to begin with a catastrophic failure, I was, there was a dive vessel in New Zealand on a project that we were working on that had six divers on it. And the French senior engineer who was on that had a falling out with all of the divers. And so they basically said, they're not going to work with him. And I was the only, I was a young graduate 
engineer. So I was really too young for the role. They didn't really have anybody else available. So they said, you know, go over here and, <laughs> and you know, sort this out and oh. make it and make it make it happen kind of thing. And to begin with, it didn't. You know, the divers, these are big guys, the burly guys, a lot of them much more older, much more experienced than me. And I went out there as this young kind of whippersnapper, kind of like do this, do that. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, it just didn't work. You know, I had the title, but I, I'd had no real power um, or authority. And so it was going the wrong way. We were losing more time. Things were getting worse. And I had to, I had to say, this is not working. What am I going to do? And this was a big learning for me because I was, I was, you know, really telling them what to do. I decided that key was, well, I really need to, to ask these guys who have a whole lot of experience in doing this kind of work that we're doing much more than me, how do we do this? How do we move forward? How do we prove, improve what we're doing? And over time, that work that allowed me to develop a relationship with these guys. And in the end on that project, we were working in like quite shallow water in this very rough area in New Zealand. And so it stirred up all the dust under the water. Right. So these divers were working by feel. And so it was really hard, challenging work, but we were able to finish the work we finished, we were doing a couple of weeks earlier. And there was a bigger boat with about 70 to 100 people and robots and all of this stuff on doing other work on site. But it was failing because the robots, they don't have the sense of touch. And so with no visibility, the pilots and that can't do the work. And so this boat was just, the big boat with 70 people was just seen there, couldn't do anything. And so once we finished our work early, we were they able then to go and bail out the big boat with, with our little boat, because we could send mm. our divers down and do the work by feel um, wow. and touch, etc. So, you know, that was, a, that was one of my, probably my first big kind of leadership experience. And ever since then, I've been trying to lead by asking rather than telling people. And that's been a big learning for me. You know, something I've kind of relearned a bit in my recent journey was, you know, I started off teaching rather than coaching. I was doing online programs to help people. And that was more, you're speaking in front of a camera and you're telling people, this is what you do, blah, blah, blah. And then it really dawned on me at one point that, hey, you know, I'm not really getting this isn't great leadership because I'm not asking people what they're experiencing, what they know, how they do it. And, and that's when I, you know, about a year and a half ago, I, I brought in the coaching component. And with that, you know, the results have kind of gone through the roof because not only you're providing great information and know-how, but, you know, you're going step-by-step step with people. You're understanding where they're at, the challenges they're facing. You're working together. You're masterminding on their challenges and their opportunities. And so it's just that kind of hybrid approach is, is really powerful. But yeah, so, you know, I had title in investment banking a bit as well, but, you know, same in the babyware business. I had the the founder kind of title, but we, we actually got into a big problem with that business where we were kind of leading by a single metric, which was sales. And we were a victim of our own success in that business where mm. we were so focused on sales and we spent a bit of time in Silicon Valley and they kind of drove us down this path, but, you know, full, we had full capability in that as well, but we oversold product we ran out of stock and in the lead up to Christmas, we were unable to fulfill customers orders of, you know, gifting babyware to people that they'd purchased and they'd been waiting for. And we told them it was coming and it wasn't coming. And we had staff issues and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, sort of two and a half years, two and a half years in, we almost lost, you know, very, a very good business because we were leading in a kind of a very myopic, we as the founders, no best kind of way. Yeah. We weren't listening and asking our employees and our customers enough. And the way we turned around that business, 
little bit similar to my burnout um, experience was we reconnected with our values as an organization. So I sat down with each and every employee and asked the question, I was like, what's important to you in this organization? Is it, you know, and they, and I, I told them to forget everything we told them leading up to that because I, I was, you know, I like the relationship with my peers. I want to please the customer. I like being creative with this. So I surveyed everybody. I was able to d- distill down 10 values from everybody within the organization. And we decided over the next six months, that was all we were going to drive our business on was improving. And we got quantitative in each of these areas. You know, what's the, how enjoyable is the employee experience at the moment? One to 10, we were doing surveys. And so we led really in a more asking kind of way, less, you know, authoritarian type of way. And that turned the business around. And, and since that point, it, it, it uh, became very successful. So yeah, I'm kind of, kind of in a, in a long winded way getting to now, but now, yeah, now there's no title now, you know, very much that approach of, of asking rather than telling becomes even, even more important, I would say in terms of building up trust and a relationship with people, because people, you know, have to choose to become a customer now. They have yeah. to want to become a customer. Yeah. I don't have some title which says, hey, you know, I'm the leader. It's yeah. it's really completely on the other end of the sphere where you have to, you know, win people over. And, you know, and this is kind of universal as well that, you know, I believe, you know, at the core, everybody wants to maximize you know, their life and their growth and their enjoyment and performance, et cetera, in life. And so people will follow the leaders that they feel that they can learn from. And so that's one of the, you know, I think the key aspects of leadership is that you're constantly learning and growing yourself. You're always going to have something for the people below you to learn. And so that's a key element of what I'm doing now. I have the work that I do with my clients, but I'm also, you know, walking the talk. And since really 2014, I've been spending a lot of time day in, day out on my own personal growth and development and reading and learning, et cetera. So I'm always learning new things and assimilating new things with the knowledge that I already have to, to provide to, to my clients so that I can, I can assist them in, in new and, and different ways. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a more humble style of leadership often than you, you find in organizations. It's a more coaching style where you're really, you know, you're asking people, you're helping them to connect the dots in different areas rather than, you know, trying to do it for them, et cetera. So yeah, I don't know. Does that answer the question? It absolutely does. And I think it's really interesting to see that, I guess, the journey of how your, your leadership has changed over time. So thinking of that, what would be your top five tips for new emerging leaders or people that are like, I'm not sure whether I'm ready to take that entrepreneurial jump, but I want to lead my tribe, my community, whomever that happens to be. What's your top five go-tos? Yeah, I think, you know, that, and this is the same with the entrepreneurial journey as it is with the leadership, as it is with any practice or journey that you embark on in, in life, is just start small, you know, start leading in the areas that you can. And, and this kind of ties a little bit to my burnout experience, but really the first lessons of leadership we have are in self leadership, taking responsibility for the different things in our life. You know, in investment banking, I let go of responsibility in many respects. There were some outside forces, of course, but I, I let go of responsibility of my sleep, of my health, of all of these important things. And so it was really a failure of self-leadership. It was a failure to follow my intuition. It was a failure to 
build clarity in the right areas around what was important to me and where I should direct my career, et cetera. But all of that is fine as long as you as long as you learn from these things. And so, yeah, the first area for us to develop our skills of leadership is in ourselves, in our personal lives, is to kind of to lead by uh, example. I think it was Abraham Lincoln had a quote around that. He believed that that was really the only way that we could lead people anyway, or teach people anyway, is to is to be the change. We want to be in the world, see. be the change we want to see in, in others, et cetera, yeah. and you know, be a leader that other people want to follow and emulate. And uh, you know, that the learning point ties to that as well. If you can learn to lead yourself really well, if you can develop really good skills around self-leadership, you know, other people will follow you in different areas of life because I'm not sure if this is an, another point, but you know, we, can, we can make this the next point is that you know, leaders are often the ones with the plan Yeah, that, you know, and it's the same in terms of leading your own life. If you want to lead a great life, you've really got to come up with a plan and structure for creating that. It doesn't really just happen great... by accident, does it? <laughs> no, it, it, it definitely doesn't. You know, if you what happens by accident is, you know, you end up just making choices and decisions based on the expectations of family, friends, society, etc. And then yeah. that is really dangerous from the perspective because one day you might wake up, you might have a shock or something like that, and say. Well, have I been making a lot of my decisions? Have I been letting others lead me um, through life rather than really taking ownership and agency over, you know, it's a short life relatively. You know, we want to jam-pack the best sort of stuff in it. And and to do that, you've got to have a really clear plan of how you do that. And when you do, you know, either the person within the organisation or even just the person that you know, if somebody knows what they want, there's, a, there's kind of like quite a lot of charisma and stuff mm-hmm. around that. It's kind mm-hmm. of a key quality of a leader. If somebody's like, yep, this is where we're going and this is what we're doing, other people that don't have the plan will be like, well, that guy's got a plan. I'll just, I'll just kind of use his and I'll see where that takes me. But, you know, when you get really clear on exactly the life you want to lead, Nobody can create the perfect plan other than you really in, oh, in doing that. And good. so you want to you take yeah, as much agency and ownership over that as you can. And, and planning is a practice. So you just, you just start small, planning little things. And uh, before you know it, you're planning, planning the big things as well. That's awesome. So I guess, that's, I guess that's number two, taking ownership I mentioned earlier. So I don't need to hash that out anymore. But yeah, I see that in particularly... Even if you're just really happy being an employee or want to be successful within your organization, is taking on as much ownership as you can and not stepping on managers' toes and things to do that. Often you might you want to ask them if there's other areas of ownership you might be able to take on. But there's a good story I've heard about this. It was about a, a steel mining magnate in America back, uh, I think, in the late 1800s or 1900s. But the story was basically there's these two steel workers and the owner of the steel organization arrives on a fancy train and jumps off and has this chat to one of the steel workers. And the other steel worker goes, you know, after, after the owner walks off, he goes, hell, you know, how the hell do you know that guy <laughs> kind of thing? And he says, well, you know, we actually started here in the same job on the same day. Oh, and he wow. was like, wow, you know, the other guy gave him a bit of hard time for, you know, you haven't risen very far, <laughs> have you? But, you know, he had the insight as to, you know, the difference was from day one, the other guy just saw it as his organization and was always, you know, looking. He wanted to learn every aspect of the business because he thought one day that might be useful to know those things because he might own it. And therefore he yeah. was able to add 
more and more value in all of the different areas of the business over time. You know, when he yeah. got into positions of leadership, he already knew what was happening and all of these sorts of things. So he yeah, rose as quickly as possible through the organization. So I think, I think taking ownership is one. Another area I like to focus on is focusing on the uh, inputs rather mm-hmm. than the outputs. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the babyware example. We were focusing on an output, which was, yeah. you know, the revenue the money yeah. and we were driving people hard for that and we were losing you know sight on the, the human element yeah. of, of everything and we had to take a, a step back and very much in the work I do now I often the framework I have that which I use to lead my clients through is called the journey framework yeah. we focus much more on journeys rather than goals um, and outcomes because goals and outcomes we typically don't have much control over. These are things that are outside our control. And if we put our happiness and all our desire and everything in these things, we're often disappointed. Whereas if we focus on the journey, that encompasses a whole lot more. It, you know, then you start thinking, well, oh, if I want going on this journey over the next year and maybe you know creating a, a following on social media or something, it's not all just about achieving a certain number by the end of the year. It's about... What's this journey going to be like? How can I make it a more enjoyable journey? What might be some intrinsic drivers for me in this, you know, creating content, serving people that I can grow, develop, nurture, et cetera. And so I find generally then you start thinking a lot more about your inputs. Where can I make investments? How can I be more consistent with the practice that I'm doing, the skills that I'm learning to develop this kind of journey or art form or or whatever you're focusing on. But the funny thing is, and and the research all supports this, is that when we focus on our inputs and the journey and enjoying it and maximizing our performance, et cetera, the outputs and the results tend to be far better than if we're actually just focusing on them very intently. Yeah, I love that. The final, the final um, one. I think the the final one, as as I mentioned, is kind of the the coaching and yeah. asking. Yeah. I see coaching, and this is kind of interesting because you know now, out of everything, I probably identify as a coach more than anything. But when I left investment banking, even though I'd have kind of experience using a sort of coaching style leadership before, mm-hmm. I was actually a bit anti coaching. I I didn't really see that you know I needed help myself. And I didn't really, I saw these sort of life coaches and things out there and I didn't have a lot of respect for the profession really and and the skill set. But over time, I've come to realize that coaching really is just the skill for helping people. If somebody is, you know, at a certain point A in their life and they want to get to a certain point B, it's a journey that they want to go on, but it's it's if you're going to help them, you're really coaching them from one point uh, to the other. You're, you're doing whatever it takes, asking the right questions, providing the right guidance, accountability, support, empathy, uh, perspective, all of these sorts of things. It's a complex skill set, but it really at the core of it is just helping people. So I, I very much identify with coaching as a, as a way to help people and as a a leader, you know, I really see that as the core thing that leaders are doing is is helping their employees to to enjoy their work more, perform better, et cetera, because as they grow and develop in that manner, the outputs of the employees and the organization are going to grow, you know, a lot as well. And so, you know, business, you know, life in many respects, it's all about people. It's about leading ourselves, about leading other people, helping other people, serving other people. So, yeah, I find that if somebody can understand coaching a little bit better, 
get in the mindset of a coach, maybe get involved with a coach so they understand the profession a little bit more, start seeing how powerful it is and why it's been something that's been around in sport for such a long time. It's something that Bill Gates and Eric Schmidt, the former CEO um, of Google, and Eric Schmidt was a, he was a bit the same as me. He was a bit, when he got suggested that he needed a coach by the board, he was like, I don't need a coach. I've been been doing this for ages. I'm fine. I'm good. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And it was only through the experience of it, he was like, wow, you know, as an individual, we don't realize how close we are to our own personal development, a lot of issues, and we don't see our blind spots. So it's just incredibly helpful to have another human being with a different perspective, a different set of life experiences to compare against at the very least, and or just to provide a little bit of guidance. But both of them said that basically everybody needs a coach, that it's just a, it's a really powerful tool there's a lot of studies in the US around this, but it's it's seen as the most powerful tool for personal and professional development is that as a society, we've created all of these tools, books, things for personal and professional development. Yeah. But if you can find the right coach, the right person to mastermind with around your challenges and opportunities, you're getting the full capability of a human being to help you uh, yeah. in those areas. And, you know, the ability to two people to work together, the mastermind to flow, et cetera, just means you can come up with a whole lot more creativity, skill, knowledge, et cetera, than you could on your own. And so you can realize a better journey uh, through life and you can perform better in your career, uh, business, et cetera, as well. I 100% agree. I've got a friend, Tony, she's an NLP master trainer. And she's got a belief or like her hope, her big dream is that people see coaches as regularly as you go and like go and have a PT session and yeah. you do your yoga and coaching's just like a thing that you do, you know, every week or fortnight as like a tune in and check up and, you know, calibrate, make sure you're on the right track and yeah, carry on. I'm like, that's a great, a great vision to have. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And it's, you know, it's that I was on, I was on the other side of that vision as, you know, there's a bit of, you know, in personal and professional development, there's a bit of a cultural stigma around going it alone, you know, meeting things. I, I went through burnout. I had family and friends supporting me, but I had no professional or serious help through that. You know, I, I went yeah. through the whole thing myself. And, you know, that's one of the, I think the biggest learnings is that when, you know, we get tired you know, burnout really is just uh, exhaustion on many levels when we get tired we often um, start having interpersonal problems with our with our bosses our peers our family members etc so the more we struggle the more we tend to get isolated and become isolated and therefore actually the harder it gets to get the help that we need and so it's you know i think it's one of the courage most courageous one of the biggest signs of strength, et cetera, that somebody can exhibit is to actually ask for help when they yeah. when they really need it. Because the ego and everything is basically saying, no, you don't ask for help with that. But, but it's the, you know, when you see somebody that's a peak performer, you think of like a tennis star, I think they all have coaches. Got and a they whole all team, yeah. Exactly. They all want as much feedback and as help in different areas that they can get. And so it's actually, it's inversely opposite, that the people that need help the most are the hardest to convince mm-hmm. um, to get it. And the, and the people that need it the least are all like, you know, the CEOs that I mentioned, they were like, yeah, coaches, let's do it. Here's my panel, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the, you know, that's the, the challenge and the opportunity. But also it means, you know, there's coaching is going through a, I guess a renaissance or you know it's a, a big a big surge as a lot of people are looking towards that as a career path because if you have learned some big important valuable lessons in life 
that's a great potential career path for somebody that's wanting to move into the digital uh, space is to understand your area of expertise, your area of genius, perhaps, and to package that into a, into a service or an organization uh, where you can help people. And the, the important thing with that is that you don't have to be a world expert or anything like that. As long as you can take people on a journey that you've been where they've been and, and you want to take them on just the next step or the next couple of steps of that journey, that's really valuable to them. And in many respects, if you've been on that more recently than a, a big fancy coach, you can actually relate to those um, experiences and things better than um, somebody that's now, you know, in a, in a really different space in, in their life. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Cam. I've loved uh, chatting with you and I love uh, learning more about the journey framework and I think it's something that uh, the listeners can definitely benefit from. So I'll make sure we put all of the links in the show notes for today's episode. But where do you like to hang out on socials for people to connect with you and, and find out more? Yeah, definitely. So Instagram's a good spot to find me. Journey of Cam is my handle. LinkedIn, I'm on there quite a lot these days. My LinkedIn handle is the Cam Miller. But otherwise, just, just my website, which is cam-miller.com is the best place to find me. It's got a, an introduction to who I am, what I do. And there's a yeah a free ebook on there as well in terms of eight, eight ideas to help take people's career to the, to the next level that people can download uh, as well as a free resource. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for your time as well, Ellie. Really, really appreciate it. Also, I love your work. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode on the Made For More podcast, please make sure you subscribe to receive future episodes. And of course, five-star reviews are always welcome on the Apple podcast. If you'd like a copy of the show notes or any of the links mentioned today, check out madeformore.com.au forward slash podcast and of course if we aren't connected already you can find me in all the usual places ali nitschke on linkedin ali.madeformore on facebook and instagram i hope you have an awesome week and i'll catch you again soon bye bye